It all goes back to December 445 B.C. in the city of Susa. And we meet this man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of those Jews who are still in exile, serving in the Persian court like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who actually were under the Babylonian court, but same era, and Ezra. Why? Because they were in captivity. Nehemiah was, a, was part of a, had a very high position before the king, before King Artaxerxes. He was his cupbearer. He was his, his cupbearer. And the, the cupbearer had a very important job, and that was to keep poison from being out of the cup of the king so that the king would not be assassinated. The king or the, the cupbearer had to be very trusted by the, by the king. And apparently, Nehemiah was very trusted by King Artaxerxes. You might remember back in Genesis chapter 40 that there was another man who was a cupbearer of Pharaoh who was thrown in jail with Joseph. There was a cupbearer and the chief, chief baker. They were thrown in prison because the Pharaoh no longer trusted them. It just so happened that it was the cupbearer that was restored back to his position, whereas the chief baker was, let's just say he lost his head. So day after day, Nehemiah was the one who would serve the king his cup of wine. And we don't want to miss a very important truth here, that just like with Ezra, it was the Lord who had raised up Nehemiah to this very high place of position before the highest king in all of the world, and to be before him daily. And as Nehemiah was doing his job, a group of emissaries from Jerusalem had returned to report of the state of the, of the area. And one of them just so happened to be Nehemiah's brother. And they gave Nehemiah a personal report of the condition of the people and of the city, and the news was not good. They were greatly troubled and they were greatly in shame because the walls were broken down and everything has been burned and the gates have been destroyed. Now again, we, we may not understand the importance of city walls. We don't have walls with cities any, anymore. Rarely did we have them. Before the invention and the usage of artillery and Mortars, walls were extremely important to the safety and the security of a city. Probably more important than an army because once the walls were, were built, they were a constant strategic defense. Costly to build, but not as much as maintaining a standing army to defend a city. Without walls around a city, anyone could get in. Think about that. Anyone can get in. Criminals, foreign armies, bands of marauders could come in and pillage all that they could and all that they wanted. So certainly for the safety and for the protection of the people 
and the city and the king, they needed walls. But that's not why, or the the complete reason and why Nehemiah was so distraught at the, the breaking down of the walls, because the walls represented so much more. Proverbs 25, 28 tells us, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You see, these walls, they represent separation and holiness and righteousness, a people unto the Lord. Broken down walls on that city represents the God of heaven was a disgrace for Nehemiah because there was no separation between God's people and the rest of the world. Nehemiah is shocked, ashamed. He mourns greatly. And as a godly leader, he prayed. He prayed to the Lord God of heaven. Brothers and sisters, do we consider for ourselves the priority the priority of being self-controlled, using the means of God's grace as the walls for us. To be constantly in the word of God, praying, living in righteousness, fellowshipping with one another in holiness so that we are not left for the pillaging of anyone, left without walls. Again, the response of Nehemiah teaches us about how we are to respond when we see brothers and sisters and we see churches that have left the walls themselves, torn down the walls of sola scriptura, the walls which God has given us, which teaches us orthodoxy, right belief, and gives us correct orthopraxy, right practice so that the church or Christians would not be susceptible to every wind and wave of doctrine, desire, trends, politics, or any other social movement that is unbiblical. Walls have been destroyed in our churches, and that means walls have been destroyed in our own lives. Do we wonder why there was so little self-control? We have much to weep over, and when we weep over these things, when we see it in the church, we are weeping like Nehemiah. We are to be so much more, oh God. We have much to weep over and pray about and trust in the Lord. Nehemiah prayed, and he fasted. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 1 this morning. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? 
So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I have had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the prince's provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that, I may, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Chapter 1 showed us a godly leader who prays. And as we move now into chapter 2, we see how a godly leader who has been praying now discernibly acts. Nehemiah wasn't crippled by the devastating news. He turned to the Lord. He depended upon the Lord, that the Lord would be the one who would act, that the Lord would be the one who would make a way. Prayer is an act of faith to call upon the Lord to do what he has promised. He prayed that God would give him favor and give him success and mercy before the king to be used by the Lord to help his people. And as we have read here now in chapter 2, from, December, from November, December, now all the way to March, April, he had been in this prayer, making this prayer before God day by day and even fastly, fasting roughly three to five months of praying before the Lord. He remained persistent and patient, persevering in prayer. We all know. We all know that those months... And sometimes even those years are not easy in prayer. Praying and praying day by day, asking to lo the Lord to, to make things right, to make a way, to do something that, that we have no idea or no clue how to handle. But, oh God, you do in some way, in some fortune, God, make a way, do things for your glory. But those days, those months, those years, they are hard. And as difficult as they are, they are certainly great lessons of patience and perseverance that the Lord will answer prayer on His timing and in His ways. And we must learn patience and perseverance. And that's hard. Those are hard days when those days turn into months. But the Lord had been preparing Nehemiah. The Lord was working on Nehemiah. And yet Nehemiah as well 
wasn't crippled. He continued to be faithful in his work. He continued to serve the king, his wine, day after day. And even despite the king's role in the trouble and shame of Israel, Nehemiah still did his job. Sadness and praying was not an excuse to do nothing. But he waited on the Lord. Anxiety and fear can cripple every part of our life, and yet that accomplishes nothing. That is more of a sign of distrust than faithfulness. And yet here in chapter 2, we see how the Lord answers Nehemiah's prayer. And Nehemiah discernibly acts, seeing the Lord answering his prayer. One of the biggest lessons that I continue to learn over the years of walking with the Lord is the more I learn to know how to navigate and to live faithfully in this world as a Christian, the more I realize how much more I need to learn. How about you? It's only getting tougher. And I know some of you have questions on how we are to live faithfully to the Lord and faithfully to His Word when we have to live in the world we live in. Living and working and living in secular environments, some places that are becoming more and more hostile to the Christian truth that you hold oh so dear and to the Christian morality that you are striving for to the glory of Christ. Therefore, this morning, from this passage, I have three principles of the Christian life that I want to share with you in how we are to live as Christians in the world, but not of the world. First, we must remember that the Lord works and the Lord moves in mysterious ways. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. We've all heard that Christian quip used before, or maybe quasi-Christian quote. I think certainly there's a biblical principle of it, and we see it in the scriptures, that God works in mysterious ways. There's some pretty crazy stories in the Bible. And how God has, has worked. I mean, you, you would have never seen it coming that a prophet who was being sent by a pagan king to curse God's people would, that God would use a talking donkey to thwart Balaam. And then to thwart that king. God works and moves in mysterious ways. That's a mysterious way. And here in the passage this morning if we weren't familiar with it and at least seen this pattern already in Ezra, this is a very mysterious way in how the Lord moves. I mean, exactly how was God going to answer Nehemiah's prayer? Can you imagine the thoughts and the desires that Nehemiah had? 
We get it because when we, we pray, we know how we want God to answer our prayers. But the reality is a lot of times we have no clue how he's going to do it. I mean, when there's no other way, God, how are you going to do it? It's like coming up to the, to the Red Sea. They're behind us, God. What are we going to do? It's, it's, it's like that. We have no clue how God is going to move. We need to be delivered. Now, Nehemiah's prayer probably included the possibilities of how God could answer his prayer. and Particularly, he asked God to, to use Nehemiah as an instrument that would bring reform in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But how exactly was that going to happen that a cupbearer would be made governor? What Nehemiah would be asking for is humanly impossible. A request that is a waste of time that could even lead to his death. Nehemiah was a servant of the most powerful man in the world. And to ask to be released from that position would be foolish to give up, not to mention a could be a clear signal of disloyalty and dislike of the king instantly. What do you mean, Nehemiah, you don't want to be around me anymore? Nehemiah could be thrown in prison or death for just insinuating that he wanted to leave. You just couldn't speak to the king. You couldn't just make a request just because you were there. This was going to be impossible for you and for me. The need that may be before us even this morning, the thing that is on our hearts this morning may be something entirely different. Maybe we need a new job or a place to live. We're struggling at work, getting married or marital issues, money issues, relationship issues with family, friends, co-workers, whatever it may be. All these things and so much more that we struggle with. And like Nehemiah, we have no idea how there's going to be a solution or fulfillment. I can't change their hearts, God. And yet we pray, Lord, help us. Let us be faithful before you in how I deal with this pressure at work or how I walk through this suffering or how we deal with these financial problems that we face or with this difficult person. Life can put us in this place. Life can put us in those places of this extreme difficulty. But like Nehemiah, we depend upon the power of God that is beyond us. And then, when it seems as if that all hope is lost, months and months of prayer, then comes that one day. That moment when least expecting. See that in chapter 2, that Nehemiah was not expecting. It comes in a strange in dangerous way to Nehemiah. In verse 2, the king asks Nehemiah, so what's wrong with you? Now, Nehemiah tells us at the end of verse 1, very specifically, I had not been sad in the king's presence. 
And why would he want to express this detail to us as the readers? Well, one reason is, is because it's not in Nehemiah's best interest to be sad and sulky before the king. It's not good to, to look like you don't want to be there. That's pretty dangerous to be sad. And the king kind of expresses that in the question. I'm not a big fan of Shakespeare, but in one of his works, Julius Caesar, Caesar expresses this scary concern that kings have for sad or disgruntled people around them. He says, let me have men that are fat, sleek-headed, and such as sleep o' nights. Which means, let me have people around me who are happy and content and feel good about themselves and are level-headed so that I, as the king, can sleep at night. He goes on, Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. Sadness is a threat to the king. It dishonors the king. Nehemiah was not planning for this kind of interaction with the king. He wasn't trying to manipulate the king out of sadness to get this question. He wasn't deliberately trying to incite the king. He certainly was carrying a burden. And this day, like all the others, serve the king, don't make him angry. And But providence has led Nehemiah into this very dangerous place when the king asks him about his sadness. And when he asks him the question in verse 2, what does, it say? what does it say? Nehemiah gives us a very personal statement there. He says he was very much afraid. I have thought about this verse. And this very real confession of Nehemiah to my morbid heart was very encouraging. Because even though he had been praying and he had probably had in his mind how, how he would like everything to play out, but with no clue of how God would accomplish it, accomplish it. But when the king asked him, why are you sad? Nehemiah was afraid. It's encouraging to me because this kind of fear is something that we all can have. It's a fear in a place that I have personally been in myself. And to hear that confession was just kind of like, yep, I'm human. I can tell you, I've been in positions of having no clue in the moment how things were going to play out. I don't know how this relationship is going to be reconciled. I don't know how I'm going to pay our bills if this goes bad or even where we're going to live. That's a fearful place. When someone who's standing in front of you has the, the ability to take all of that from you. So in maybe a weird way, Nehemiah's fear is very comforting to me. Because there are places in life where there's real fear toward those who seek to do us harm. I didn't go to very many deacons meetings when I served in the Baptist churches that I've served in. 
And if you've ever been to a deacon's meeting, you probably know why. Unfortunately, they are not the most productive for edifying or deacon-like meetings. But there was this one meeting where I was invited to. I was the special guest. And to be there, I was afraid. I was afraid at what these men could take away from me. They could take away from my family, my ministry, from my church. And we find ourselves in life-threatening places like that. Difficult places where we need an extraordinary amount of grace. The Lord does give us what? Give us that grace, as we see he does here to Nehemiah. Grace to be strong. Grace to be courageous, to act according to his word and faithfulness. That happens to be the last deacon's meeting I have ever been to. Two men this morning went with me. But I can tell you, I can tell you this, is that I had no idea in that fear how God was going to use any of this. But in this very strange, mysterious way, God brought us by his providence into that day. I was scared, but the Lord moves in mysterious ways. He can provide from the most unexpected places and the most unexpected people walking through the most unexpected times. He can change and use the most hostile of hearts. You may not see it, you do not have to see it. Because really, if we did see it, we may not believe it at all. And if you skip ahead to verse 8, we see how God has richly provided for God's people and has made a way for Nehemiah. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. And in those moments of fear, let us rely upon him that he will give us the grace. Secondly, continually commune with the Lord. And when I say continually, I mean in the moment. Look at verse 3. How does a scared Nehemiah answer the king's question? Pretty directly. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He answers the king first, I think, by for the way that he genuinely feels in serving this king, that he wants the best for him. But he also states for him the obvious, my people in the city of my people where my fathers are buried. It is a mess. It is in ruins, destroyed by fire. And this king can sympathize with that. He knows this. He's received the reports. So in verse 4, must have been a very heart-pounding moment when waiting for the king's response. And the king asks, 
What are you requesting? The Lord moves in mysterious ways. Could this be the moment that Nehemiah was waiting for? Heart pounding, knees shaking, but Nehemiah in his heart, in his mind, prays to the God of heaven. Do you see that there in verse 4? That he prays. The conversation with the king didn't stop. Nehemiah didn't fall on his knees and begin to pray the prayer that that we heard that he prayed back in verse 1, but certainly a short, noticeable pause to petition the king over all kings who has the kings of man like waters in his hands. He prays to the God of heaven before making his request before this king of Persia. Scripture tells us very clearly that Nehemiah prayed. And this kind of prayer is what Nehemiah will continually do throughout the book. We'll see this, these very short, arrow-like prayers in our, in our hearts and minds in moments of great need where we pray, Lord, help me, <laughs> in our minds, right? Lord, help me. Lord, give me grace. Lord, give me courage to speak the truth. Lord, I need you now. Lord, be with us. Lord, make a way. Come, Lord Jesus. We understand these prayers. I was introduced to these in a very immature way going into Spanish class to take quizzes that I didn't study for. Lord, help me. We understand these prayers. We've all prayed them walking into a hospital room when dealing with financial strain, going to funerals, hearing the phone ring to receive news, or standing before standing in the pulpit. In these intense situations, may our thoughts always go to communing with the Lord. May it reveal who is our real hope and our provider. These prayers are helpful. This communing with the Lord is helpful. And there are three things I want to say about that. First, this kind of prayer is an, should be an, uh, uh, an instinctual communion with the Lord. It should be an instinctual communion with the Lord because these prayers are effectual. Lengthy prayers are good. They're great. They're wonderful. Pray often. Pray all the time. But not all prayers are that. We can pray. We can always sit down and pray at length. But I don't want you to disconnect the reality that when Nehemiah prayed here, it is because he had been praying all along. He knew where to turn to quickly in that moment. His heart had already been primed and ready to act and receive. It was instinctual to him to pray to the Lord in his fear. And when asked this question, what are you requesting? That he petitions before the Lord in that very moment that God would give him the words to say before this king. And when we pray in those moments, those moments of fear, those moments of intensity, We can pray to the Lord as Nehemiah did because we know the Lord will act in our behalf. Second, Nehemiah shows us the absolute necessity for God's people to pray in all situations and in all places. 
He had been praying for months. And still there was this need in this moment to pray. He wasn't done. When fear ascended into his heart, he prayed. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church is encouraged to rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Praying without ceasing is praying like Nehemiah did, in constant communion with the Lord as our instinct of what we do. We turn toward Him. The necessity to pray in all situations, in all places. And third, this is an example of a prayer that is immediately answered, isn't it? When all other times of prayer was met with not yet, this prayer was answered with God's favor and mercy. This instinct of prayer for Nehemiah is one that was cultivated. It was God-given over those, over those months. Nehemiah is an example of what God does. He's displaying for us godliness. In the Gospels, we hear Jesus pray like this, don't we? In John's Gospel, we hear Jesus pray on the cross, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Very arrow-like prayer. And what an example of prayer that we have been set before us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah would have never had an opportunity to speak or make a request to this king unless asked by the king. But brothers and sisters, when we pray, and even in those moments, we're not waiting for the king of kings to say, okay, you can pray now. But we can pray now. We can petition before him now. He hears us now. The king of kings. The one who holds kings and leaders and presidents and bosses all in place. Pray continually. Pray without ceasing to the King of Kings. And third, third point. Let us walk by faith because the Lord is good. Nehemiah prays he strengthened, and he makes the request. Verse 5, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He requests to go back to the city, to be the one who rebuilds the city, to rebuild the walls. But more than that, Nehemiah longs to see God's word fulfilled. In verse 6, this is the king's question. This is wonderful. Look at it says. He says, how long will you be gone and when will you return? <laughs> he answers the 
the king. In verse 7, he says, if it pleases the king, give us all these things. Give us the, the correct letters to the provinces beyond the, the rivers that we will have safe passage to Judah. Tell, tell Asaph, the king's, the king's uh, keeper, of the, the, the keeper of the forest, uh, to, to give us all the timber that we need to rebuild all of these things. What's amazing here is that Nehemiah already had a general idea how long he would probably be gone. He already knew the authorizations and the legal papers that would be required for safe passage and the authorizations needed and the right people for the rebuilding of the city. He also knew that to do his job was going to be costly and the specific material would need to be provided that he couldn't provide for. He's just a cupbearer. And so he asked the king for them. This tells us that Nehemiah was not only praying, but Nehemiah was also planning. This means for a successful outcome that was beyond his ability... They are beyond our, our, our ability, excuse me, but he could give attention to how the Lord would accomplish. And so he planned. And that plan had, was unfolded before the king. Nehemiah desired to be used by the Lord, and God answered his prayers. But Nehemiah also gave great thought to how, how and what was needed. Is that not what we are called to do when the scripture tells us to walk by faith and not by sight? Often we are told to walk by faith and not by sight. It literally means just walking blindly. Close your eyes and just let everything fall into its particular place. But walking by faith is not walking blindly. Walking by faith, biblical faith, is not without knowledge. Walking by biblical faith is not walking without experience. It isn't a shot in the dark. Faith is informed by whom we have faith in, and that is the Lord God, our Heavenly Father. Faith leads us to be prepared, to be ready to act, to be discernibly ready to act ready to be used by the Lord, ready to be faithful when called upon. Amen. <laughs> to walk by faith and not by sight is to walk according to what we have been shown in the Scriptures. Not blind, but prepared. As a shield. A shield of faith. At the end of verse 8, it says, And the king granted to me what I asked. <laughs> that's, that's astonishing. <laughs> king Artaxerxes, a very pagan king, gives this request. Sure, you can rebuild the city walls. Sure, I will give you everything that you need. You need timber from Asaph? No problem. But he says in verse 8, 
for the good hand of my God was upon me. Why do we walk by faith? Not just because the king might or might not give us what we want, but because the good hand of our God is with us. I started out this morning telling you that this message was about how we are to live faithfully in a secular world that is becoming more and more hostile to biblical Christianity, and I think that this last point brings it all together. What does the good hand of my God has upon me really mean for us? And first it means, and it should come to no surprise, that our God is sovereign. And that the power of a Persian dictator is no match to the power of God, the God of heaven. When he says that the hand of God is upon me, he is proclaiming and telling us about the power of God. Over and over in the Bible, we see the Lord humble the hearts of some of the most wicked leaders. We see him use wicked nations to bring about his will. We see him use kings to provide for his people in lavishing ways. This is now, what, the third time in our going through Ezra and Nehemiah? Now, God uses them to provide lavishly for his people. And see, this is just God flexing his muscles just a little bit, flexing the muscles of, of his might, and men will bend every time. God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. Brothers and sisters, we can take comfort in that there is no situation that you will ever be in that the Lord is not sovereign over that he is not in control over, that he is not omnipotent over, that he is not omniscient over, and that he could not deliver you or provide for you in ways that you will never see or could not see. He acts on our behalf because we are his and he is ours. He is sovereign. And no dictator is a match for our God. Second, the Lord is good. He is always good. And by, for, by his very nature, he is good. We read Psalm 145 starting out this morning as a, just a reminder as we begin of the goodness and greatness of God in, in all things. We're reminded that every good gift is a gift from above. Every pleasure, every ray of sunshine, every good meal, every good drink, every good fellowship, every heartbeat. We can go on and, and on. All of these things are good gifts from God. But God's goodness is also seen in these special moments when the Lord specifically acts on behalf of his people to bless us, to provide for us, to protect for us, and to further his kingdom in these very special ways. I'll just give an example of that. 
when the Lord answers our prayers. <laughs> Over the past weeks, we as a church have seen the Lord miraculously answer our prayers. We've prayed for people. We've prayed for some of you. We've prayed for some of your family members, and God answered them. That's God's goodness. It's his goodness toward us. He's showing us his goodness as he's our heavenly father, that even in those very specific things, he is good. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver is asked by the children, who is Aslan? He's astonished. Like, well, how do you not know who Aslan is? He says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Susan looks back and asks, is he quite safe? Mr. Beaver answers, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. Christ is king, and he is good. He is good, and his good hand is with us. Lastly, I want to close with this. Nehemiah showed that a godly leader prays and acts, but when Nehem, but like Nehemiah, godly leadership gives glory to God. Nehemiah, in this verse, is giving all glory to God, to him who deserves it. I prayed, I fasted, I planned, I asked the king, I stood before the king, but God did it all. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul reiterates this same thing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. I worked. I worked harder than anyone else, but it wasn't me. It was by the grace of God. It is as if Nehemiah and Paul were looking back at all that has transpired and they asked themselves, why did I say that? How did I say that? Why did I do that? And the answer to that question is because God did it. The Holy Spirit led them and empowered them because the good hand of God was leading them and protecting them and guarding them as he is guarding us and guiding us. We walk by faith because the good hand of God is with us. And when we look back, when we look back, may the Lord give us eyes to see that it was all of him and that we would quickly give him the glory that he deserves. We are all still learning how to live faithfully as Christians in this world. But may we always be shaped by the word of God to trust in the word of God. Brothers and sisters, remember that in God's providence, he moves in mysterious ways. Stay in continual, instinctual communion with the Lord, praying in those moments. And walk by faith because the good hand of the Lord is with you.
Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Would you help us to learn these very biblical principles, trusting in you, leaning upon you, praying, remembering that the good hand of our God is with us, remembering that you are sovereign and that you are good and that we would give you glory in all of these things in these days. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.